we are in chapter 5 and we're in verses 38 through 42. This is a familiar section of the Sermon on the Mount um, for most everyone. You've heard this uh, many times. Uh, an eye for an eye and somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. And... Um, What mountain? Uh, well, it's not really a mountain. I mean, there there are no real mountains there uh, in the um, on that side of Galilee. This, if you take the uh, the Sea of Galilee, um, and um, Huh? What'd you say? His artwork's getting ready to be good right now. Um, I'm trying to remember, uh, trying to get my um, places straight in my mind. Bill, what's the name of that town up there? Um, Capernaum. If you come down uh, around that, you've got Gennesaret. Kind of down there. Right in this area, there's, uh, you go up here to, what is it, Chorazin? It's kind of up the hill from this. Maybe a couple of miles, three miles, something like that. But there's, a, there's like a long uh, sloping area that, that moves down this way and a lot of people believe that it was up there on this on this uh, hillside is the way I would describe it and some of them believe it was pretty high there's there's like a there's some kind of a building up there that um, I don't remember exactly what it was some it's sort of church or something was it a church that's probably yeah, right a church up there and some people believe that the Sermon on the Mount occurred up there, but that kind of doesn't fit the M.O. that when Jesus was preaching around Galilee, usually down close to the water, because water is a con conduit for sound, and that you know he would get in a boat and, and, and preach with a crowd along the shore so he could keep them at a distance from him and get the benefit of the sound traveling over the water. Uh, but maybe closer to this the other side of that is the lake may have been a little fuller at the time too so it could have been a little further up and he could have been uh, in that area but anyway kind of the northwestern corner of galilee up there on that slope is the traditional site where the sermon on the mount took place capernaum peter was from capernaum right that's right. where he lived and resided so there's a place there that um, is traditionally the home site for Peter, they found a place several meters down in the ground that they found uh, fishing tackle and paraphernalia for the day. There's a, there's a first century boat that was discovered down here along the coast and along the edge of the water that's in a museum there now. 
that would have been typical of the day when Jesus walked that they would have used as a fishing boat. So this is supposed to be the Sea of Galilee. This is the Sea of Galilee right here. Does it have an, a, a touching with the ocean or is it just itself? This no. no. You've, got, <clears throat> you've got uh, Mount Hermon up here and so the Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee and, and uh, there's springs up there obviously but then there's a lot of snow melt and things like that that, that help fill it up. It flows down all the way down to the Dead Sea where there is no outlet. So fresh water, Dead Sea, the Jordan River Valley is down here. You've got uh, Jerusalem down here. And uh, these, you know, this would have been uh, Samaria at the time. Now you've got some, you've got some mountains around here like Tabor, Mount Tabor, um, Mount Carmel is back over here. So there are mountains there, they're up there, but there's nothing other than the Golan Heights, which is over here on this side. Which where, is is kind of, where is Bethlehem in there? Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem, right? And down here you have Jericho. So, and that's the extent of my geographic knowledge of, of the area. Okay. Thank you, sir. The Sea of Galilee, be much smaller than that. It's not proportioned right. Uh, but it's what, seven miles this way? And what, three to four across? Is that right? I think it's 13 well, and seven. 13 and seven? That sounds right. <clears throat> so it's 13 miles up and down and seven across. That hillside does form kind of an amphitheater. Right. Right. So it, it does. It could be the people were on the hill. That's right. And Christ was in the hill. Right. You could easily visualize that. But the the issue with uh, the the traditional name Sermon on the Mount, you you envision a mountain somewhere, and that's not it's not the Mount of Transfiguration or anything like that. You know, it's really just a slope down to the water's edge. Uh, but it. It goes for several hundred yards up through there, wouldn't it? Um, maybe a half a mile, mile. It's, it's a long, sloping, grassy, lots of flowers and stuff like that. So that's where traditionally most people believe it occurred. But I don't know that anybody would, you know, stake their life on it. Uh, that's the thing. A lot of things happened over in uh, Palestine and they have a pretty good sense of it happened probably here, but there's very little that they can say unequivocally it happened here. Does that make sense? Uh, most of it's 90, 95%, 98% true, but there's a chance maybe it could have been somewhere else. Just about everywhere you go, there's a traditional site that most people feel good about. There's one that may be the commercial version of that traditional site, and it may be a half a mile away. When you get into the city of Jerusalem, you know, everybody wants to know where the crucifixion took place, you know, where the, where the sepulcher is, and you've got 
a holy sepulcher that's actually got a church built over it and it's got commercialism going on inside it where they're selling souvenirs. Uh, and that's inside the walls of the, of the old city, uh, the relatively old city. And then you've got one outside the city that more fits our expectation called the um, Garden Tomb that uh, looks more like what we would expect it to look like. It's outside the city, so it fits that bill. But the scholars say they don't really think that's where the tomb was. So you've always got a couple of people. And there's always commercial interest involved. Yeah, that's just the bottom line. And it's probably good that we can't emphatically say this happened here. All right? Are we good with that? Thank you, Pastor Jim. You're welcome. Sermon on the Mount, verses 38 through 42. Things that you've heard all your life. An eye for an eye. Turn the other cheek. Whatever does it mean? Well, I think we would begin by thinking about uh, rights. You know, we in our country, we have this uh, focus on our inalienable rights. Correct? Uh, the Declaration of Independence talks about life, we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And today, this concept has exploded in our, in our world today, particularly in America, right? We got rights about everything, don't we? We're kind of rights acti activists. The Bill of Rights. But we've moved beyond that. The Bill of Rights is just a starting point for us today, isn't it? Think about some of the some of the uh, arenas out in our culture, in our in our land today, where rights activism is taking place. Give me one. Abortion. 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 Right to yeah. choose. Right to abortion. Right to choose. Same-sex marriage or same-sex uh, issues into that. Yeah, identity. Gender identity. I was thinking about that. You know, all these um, gender reveal parties that people have now, they, 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 should, they should be outlawed, right? Gender reveal parties. Oh, oh, you're talking about when somebody has a baby coming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's just presuming upon the baby that they really are. I mean, come on. Shh. Yeah, right to a safe place. Snowflakes. Now, we've got, we've got some old standbys. We've got civil rights, which, now, let, let's, let's uh, back up just a minute and say, you know, none of us are for abusing anyone's rights. You know, when you think about civil rights, a lot of good things took place there, right? We, we wouldn't quibble with that or argue with that. But now we've equated gender rights with 
race, haven't we? We've put it on the same level. And there's no way that you can make that case. Right? Some people have. Uh, no way. You know, it, it's amazing to me how contradictory some of these arguments are, and it's the same people making them. You know, they'll argue for a, the right to abort, but, you know, then we, we've got to protect, we've got to protect the right to choose what gender I'm going to identify with. Um, to, to me, it's, it's really contrived the way that these things are un, unpacking. We've got workers' rights. This is probably uh, showing my age here. You know, this goes back to unions, citizen rights. Citizenship, why not just this? Gun rights. I want to put that one up there, huh? Medical care. Right to. Health care. Um, it's interesting. I've had this discussion. Um, I don't know how you'll feel about it, but uh, and, and this has been years ago where you get into this discussion about insurance, okay? And particularly in in the realm of employment benefits, you know, you go in and uh, get get insurance benefits and uh, people who have this uh, idea that that that's a foregone conclusion that you're guaranteed that you're, you're entitled to that and I'm saying you know you got the wrong attitude about this you're seeing it as some sort of a perk that you're looking to benefit from when in fact it's a safety net to protect you from catastrophe right that's the way it was designed but now it's become more of my my whole uh, portfolio, you know, and, and that's the attitude. But people look at it and they, they think you're crazy to talk like that. No, but it's, it, you just need it. My wife and I had this discussion a few years ago. I don't know, it's been, um, it's been seven or eight years ago, I guess. Our, um, the person that, that holds our life insurance policy sat down and said, look, I want us to rework this. I can lock you in. You're at that age where your life insurance premiums are going to start ratcheting up. I can lock you in at a fixed rate and give you a 20-year policy, okay? Carries you to in my 70s, all right? And I immediately said, let's do it. And my wife said, well, what happens at 72 or 1? And he said, well, it goes away. And she said, well, what do we do then? And I said, theoretically... You shouldn't care about life insurance at 71 or 72. You should have everything taken care of, right? right? That's the way I'm looking at it. But she's going, no, somebody dies, we're getting paid. <laughs> you know? Somebody dies, you, particular. Yeah, yeah. You die, I'm getting paid. No, honey, that's not the way this works, you know? We want to be protected, but by this time, Everything should be paid for. We're set, right? We should have money set up to pay for the funeral. We're good to go then. That's the way I'm thinking. Insurance is just to help protect us till we get there. <clears throat> but that's not the way that our culture has, has developed because of this idea of rights. I got my rights. I know what my rights are. You'll hear it sometimes in the marketplace. 
You know, it may be somebody going up to the airline counter. I know what my rights are. You can't do this. You can't do that. Blah, blah, blah. You know, or when someone gets, uh, you know, the, the police deal with this all the time with the law, don't they? Yeah. I know what my rights are. You can't do this. You better uh, Mirandize me. You got to do this. You got to do that. You can't search this without a warrant. Blah, blah, blah. Rights, rights, rights. Everybody's talking about rights. Rights. Our society has set almost a, an impossible bar for concern about some of these rights that we're dealing with. Uh, we tend to lionize or make heroes out of people who take, take uh, on the cause or to defend or procure rights. You know, animal rights. Nobody mentioned that one. My dog's got rights. Climate control. My dog doesn't even know he's got rights. And don't know, any of y'all tell him. Wherever he finds I tell him he's got the right to go outside and sleep tonight if he doesn't behave himself, right? Yes. Okay. So, bottom line is we've got a lot of rights issues going on, and at the heart of them, What's working at the heart of this? Self. Hmm. I mean, it really is. It? Now, again, I want to I want to do a disclaimer and say, you know, there's there's parts and maybe maybe many of these, or certainly some of them, where we would not make that accusation. We would say that. Uh, someone's experiencing racism, then that's not necessarily a selfish thing that they want to be treated with equality, right? right. Same thing with uh, with feminism. If you've got, you know, feminism has gotten a rap too of going too far in one direction, and that's what we tend to get is the pendulum swings too far. But none of us want to go back to the days where, you know, where women were treated as second-class citizens, if that at all, right? right? So we want to make sure that we're not uh, going, going overboard here on these things or you don't hear that coming from me because that's not what I'm saying. Sinful man wants what he thinks is his own. In the process of getting it, he's inclined to, to wreak havoc on anyone that happens to be in the way, right? Anybody go out shopping on Black Friday? You know, I went out Friday afternoon, and I was amazed at how calm it was out there. I don't know. They've started doing it so early. Uh, they start on Thursday night now, don't they? That it, I guess the storm's over by the time sun comes up on Friday. Several websites crashing all over the country. Were there? <laughs> but, you know, riddle me this, Joker. <laughs> this is one of the kinds of things I think about. Thanksgiving. Yep. Can you identify, you know, what, what is Thanksgiving proper? That's Thursday, set aside in our country. What's the purpose? To give thanks, to acknowledge our blessings, right? Uh, it's a time that I think most people appreciate. One of my favorite weeks of the year, uh, because I think we slow down a little bit typically and think about 
how we've been blessed, what God has done. But think about the irony of then the Black Friday <laughs> that has become a rite of passage, hasn't it? I mean, it's, it has become a huge deal. And how these two things contradict one another. This is, this is what's wrong with our culture. Black is Friday it, has encroached in Thanksgiving. Yeah. It starts Thanksgiving afternoon now. We're in an identity crisis. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we think. We don't know who we are. We don't, have, we don't know what our convictions are. We can switch gears. We can go from being humble, thankful pilgrims at 3 o'clock on Thursday afternoon to being lunatics at 6 o'clock in the evening when we're trying to pick up uh, a Mario game at Walmart and trying to beat everybody over the head to get it because that's what's going on in our culture, isn't it? I'm a Buzz Lightyear. Buzz Lightyear. Um, okay, so when he's inclined to get what he has to have, he wreaks havoc on whoever takes what he believes is his. And this often results in retaliation, doesn't it? You see this, you see this a lot on, in sports. Uh, anybody watch the Auburn-Alabama game last week? Some of you saw that. You see the guy that sat out the first half from, Al from is that the same game? Georgia, it was a Georgia player, Georgia-Georgia Tech game. 50-7 to seven ball game, and this guy's in the end zone fighting with somebody. He's punching somebody who's got a football helmet on. I mean, there's dumb and then there's dumb, right? He's over there giving him the business, you know, on national TV, three referees around watching. He's thrown out of the ball game. Not only does he get thrown out for the rest of this game, which he's only been in for five minutes because he had to set out the first half for something that happened last week, but now he's got to sit out the first half of next week. Why? Why? He's stupid. Well, he's stupid, but <laughs> it's retaliation over something that happened. He's, it's me, 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 me. He has violated the rules. He's, he's cost himself the opportunity to play in probably the biggest game in his career up to this point next week. He's, he's, and, he's, and he's run the risk of hurting his team uh, over this because it's all about self. It's all about me. It's easy for us to look at it and go, yeah, boy, how stupid is that? But we've all been there too, haven't we? Where we just couldn't stand it. We just can't hold it in. We're just ready to go. And that's the picture of retaliation. And that's really what, what Jesus is getting at here in these verses. If you heard what that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So self is at the forefront. If self is at the forefront, everybody else has to be somewhere else, right? If self is at the front, everybody else has got to be behind that, right? And that's what happens. That's what happened with this guy last week. I'd be interested to know what kind of conversation he had with the coaching staff after the game or in the film session this week. When self-interest dominates, justice is replaced by vengeance. Impartial concern for justice becomes partial concern for personal revenge. 
Concern for protecting society becomes concern for protecting self-interest. James chapter 4, James speaks to this. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So, what's he saying? He's saying that we don't have the things we think we need, and so we're going to take them because we think that we deserve them. When in fact, we don't have because we don't turn to Him, we don't ask Him. We look to God. This is what we're supposed to do. And to retaliate, to take vengeance, these things are indicative of a person who's not looking at God at all in these matters. When rights are first, righteousness always suffers. Paul had rights trampled on as much as anybody, and yet he wrote to the selfish and indulgent Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is what he said. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are, you not, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? The, the Corinthians have been giving him a hard time, holding him to a different standard. And so he's pushing back on that. Um, not that Paul would do that, but he was accustomed to surrendering his life, buffeting his body, putting his own desires and pleasures and comforts and everything aside. But these guys had just gone too far. And so he's pushing back on that a little bit and saying it's, you know, it's not, uh, it's not uh, what we should be doing. So boiling down these, these verses of Scripture, these four verses that he gives us, or five verses, we see the principle in the law. Jesus takes this directly from the Old Testament. Um, Brian, look up Exodus 21, verses 24 and 25 for us. Uh, James, if you'll do Leviticus 24 and verse 20. Sam, will you do Deuteronomy 19 and 21? Uh, Phil, if you'll do Deuteronomy 19, verse 20. And Bill, if you'll do Genesis 4, 23 and 24. David, you'll do... Let's see, I give you Exodus 21. All right, when you get there, just stay there. I'm going to have you do another one. 19. Same thing for you, um, Sam. We'll read verse 20 first, and then I'm going to go back to verse 18, okay? Um, David, I didn't give you one, right? Okay, do Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Judy, would you like one? Romans 12, 19. Bob, Hebrews 10, verse 30. All right, let's stop there. Okay, the principle in the law. Jesus takes this directly from the Old Testament. Exodus 21, 24, and 25. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. 
Okay, Leviticus 24.20. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given him. Deuteronomy 19.21. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So this reflects the principle lex talionis, which which is one of the most ancient law codes, and it means that the punishment should fit the crime, should be an exact equivalent. That, that's what it's referring to. Uh, we would say in our culture, a tit for tat, uh, quid pro quo, you know, but, it, but that's what it means, is that he's saying this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, arm for an arm, foot for a foot, etc., etc., is just advocating this same law. This, the earliest record of this Lex Talionis is in the Code of Hammurabi, which is, who was a Babylonian king, about 100 years prior to Moses living. So that's the first evidence we have written, and, uh, and obviously we see it in the Mosaic Law as well. The idea for matching punishment and offense serves two purposes. Deuteronomy 19, verse 20. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. Okay, what's that say? What did he say? What? Use, use them as an example. Right. He's saying this is a deterrent, right? right. That when, when someone violates the law, does something wrong, and he is held accountable to that, and he, if he has knocked out somebody's eye and they come along and knock his out, then it becomes a deterrent to everyone else that better be careful what you do, right? Okay? Um, so it's a deterrent to further crime. Genesis 4, 23 through 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Yeah, so with uh, Lamech, what you've got is a, um, a propensity to uh, exact vengeance, okay? And he's even going beyond this tit-for-tat. He's going beyond the lex talionis. He's saying, you slap me, then I'm going to beat you to a pulp. I'm not just going to slap you back. I'm going to take you and I'm going to teach you a lesson that you don't. This is an attitude of prideful vengeance, right? So, uh, what's Jesus saying in this passage of Scripture? He's saying that the, the law, this lex talionis, was not only meant to deter future crime by saying an eye for an eye, but it was also an act of grace. In other words, there's a limit to what kind of punishment is, is warranted when someone does something wrong. And you can't go beyond that. You shouldn't go beyond that. Whatever he's done to deserve punishment, that's exactly what he should get. But don't go foolhardy here. Go full bore and just take out your, your frustrations and, and keep pummeling, right? So punishment was to be carried out by appointed judges, not the victim. Exodus 21, 22. Brian? Sorry, what was it? Exodus 21, 22. who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely but there is no serious injury the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands 
and the court allows. So a reference to the court. Deuteronomy 19, verse 18. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So they had, they had judges that, that are supposed to be neutral. They're supposed to be objective. And they're supposed to mete out justice accordingly. So that they're guarded against too much retaliation or vengeance occurring. That it, that it would be equitable. And, and, uh, and everybody could feel confident uh, in that as well. Selfish overreaction is the natural response of sinful human nature. This is one reason God restricts vengeance to himself. Deuteronomy 32... 35. Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. Hebrews 10, 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. So God's always instructed the individual to be compassionate and gracious. You know, but that he's not, Jesus is not advocating here that you be uh, a doormat to be romped on either. Uh, but he is saying that, that we are to be measured in any kind of um, punitive uh, action that needs to be taken. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Proverbs twenty five twenty one says, No individual has the right to say, Thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. In no instance did the Old Testament allow an individual to take the law into his own hands and apply it personally. He was always looking for that intermediate um, party. So there was abuse in the Jewish tradition. This was what the law advocated. The law says, eye for an eye. This is to make sure that future crime is deterred. This is to make sure that the current crime, that grace is applied, and it doesn't become extravagant and, and over, overdone. Okay? So the abuse in the Jewish tradition of Jesus' day, the, the, the uh, rabbinic tradition, did exactly what God did not want to occur. They were taking it personally. They were using it as uh, justification for vengeance and retaliation and um, taking out their frustrations on, on other people, right? Civil justice was perverted to personal vengeance. Instead of acknowledging that an eye for an eye was a limit on punishment, they were seeing it as a mandate for punishment. That makes sense? <clears throat> they used it as a mandate for vengeance, as has happened throughout history. Still goes on today. You know, we have lots of cases where the punishment doesn't fit the crime, right? Uh, Muslims uh, take in honor killings, right? If a girl was found out to have violated her relationship with her family, she has violated herself in some way, they think nothing about taking her out and killing her. And we go, really? I mean, okay, disown her if you want. Ostracize her if you want. But kill her? An honor killing, which is to make her cease to exist because she has violated some 
uh, ethical code here that we have. Not to say that that's not important, but saying the punishment doesn't fit the crime, does it? Uh, other things that you could think of? Punishment doesn't fit the crime? Yeah, okay, they get grace, right? They get, they get, uh, they get off um, because of things like that. Sometimes a guy who's innocent gets sent for being in the wrong place at the wrong time or being falsely accused, and he can't prove his own innocence, and he gets sent to prison and spends years in there, right? Uh, I was reading about one of those situations just the other day, uh, and it's really sad. I mean, those guys can't get it back, but many times you'll see they'll come out and talk about how, you know, while... While they're they're sorrowful and even angry to a certain degree that they've been robbed of those years, they also recognize that sometimes those years in there have been what was best for them. Maybe they've come to Christ and and uh, and they come out a different changed person because of it. Um, but we see it all the time. We may see a parent, you know, deliver uh, punishment on a child for misbehaving, and we'll go. Why the overreaction? You know, all they did was something simple, you know. Well, it may have been building up, you know. Or you could follow the practice of my mother, you know, sometimes that she would uh, punish me. And, I mean, when she punished, she punished. And then, you know, I'm saying, look, I didn't do what you're accusing me of doing. You know, what you think I did, I didn't do it. And she would finally say, well, I'm sure you've done something else today. You deserved it for, and I didn't see it. So we're even. Well, pfft. You know, that doesn't work, does it? It did for her. It didn't work for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Instead of acknowledging that an eye for an eye was a limit on punishment, they used it as a mandate. The scribes and Pharisees once again turned God's law into a tool for oppression and abuse. This is what they were most apt at doing, making it serve them and what they wanted to do with it, whatever they wanted to uh, accomplished rather than seeing how God designed it to protect people and to uh, facilitate uh, righteousness uh, in interactions with people. And what Jesus teach? Jesus says, do not resist him who is evil. Jesus rebuts the Pharisees' misinterpretation and forbids retaliation. He does not teach that no stand should be taken against evil. Jesus, in fact, uh, was faithful uh, in many instances, to take a stand against evil. I mean, clearing out the money changers in the temple. Anybody remember that one? That, he, he took matters into his own hands then, didn't he? Um, Paul. Paul opposed Peter. Remember when Peter uh, kind of sided with the uh, Judaizers and, and Paul got upset because he was setting a bad example and he took him to task right there. Yeah, uh, Jesus intervened there. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting, you know, he didn't get, he didn't get um, animated over that from everything we can see, but, uh, but he certainly knew how to put, put things back in their proper place. Uh, sometimes it works. We see an occasion where um, it wasn't, it didn't operate perfectly. I mean, you remember when Paul was brought before the Sanhedrin um, and he he mouthed off to the high priest and they slapped him in the face and then he mouthed off again. Um, 
you know, and he admitted, I think he admitted somewhere later that that wasn't a proper response on his part. It wasn't right the way they treated him and the way they were treating him, but by the same token, what he did didn't make it right either, that, that he should have been more composed in that instance. So uh, we see evidences of that uh, throughout of uh, Christians standing their ground uh, against abuses. In that, in that culture, you talked about how the, the rabbis and the, the leaders had created a very oppressive environment for the Jewish people. Do you have an example? Because I'm thinking of the Romans being in charge, right? The Roman authority. But the Romans didn't get involved in religious matters. So religious laws were the oppression. Right, right. More than the Romans were the Romans were okay. concerned about civics. Right. Okay. They. And that's one of the reasons that, that they were um, influenced by the Jews in dealing with the Christians in a negative way because the, the Jews had this animosity toward the Christians the way after Christ's resurrection. So there was this tension. And the Romans were uncomfortable with it because this made the whole society unstable. And that's what they wouldn't put up with. They ruled with an iron fist. We're going to have peace. We're going to have peace. We're going to have peace. That's the end of the discussion. And if you've got two sides over here squabbling with each other, that's when they get upset. So that's what the Jews did when, when they had an axe to grind. They went to the Romans and tried to get them riled up, knowing that they would, that they would get involved and enforce um, their, their idea of what peace needed to look like. What so, are some examples of how the, the Jewish leadership was being oppressive towards the Jews in a religious fashion that Jesus was... Well, just this thing right here. They were using the law to say um, if someone did something, then they were using that as an excuse to go in and exact vengeance, you know, uh, on them, to retaliate in some fashion. Uh, the woman caught in adultery, you know, which some people argue whether it's actually uh, scriptural. You know, there's a sec that section there at the beginning of John 8 that uh, some Bibles leave it out because there's some discrepancy about it. Most scholars will say probably happened. Lots of evidence to support that it happened. Might not have been placed in the right place there in the Gospel of John. Nevertheless, uh, just, that's just a disclaimer, okay? But Jesus, um, they were after Jesus. They didn't care about the woman. But they brought her and used her in, in an attempt to trip him up. You know, this woman we caught in adultery. Well, what do you think we ought to do with her? Well, they knew what the law said. You know, and my question's always been, well, where's the other party? When you have adultery, aren't there two people involved? Um, that they were using and abusing her. So this is the way they did everything. They, they were using what promoted their agenda, mostly. And, and they would use the law and twist the law in order to do just that. Uh, we talked here a few weeks ago, I think I told you about, you know, there were things that they could do on the Sabbath. And they had this thing mapped out, you know, how, how many steps could they take on the Sabbath before it became work? How far could they travel from the home? You know, in the home, on the same floor, maybe there was no steps. You didn't have to count your steps. Once you got outside the home, you had to start counting steps, which applied against what you were allowed for the Sabbath that day. And once you went over a certain number of steps or a certain distance then you send okay so what they would do is they might tie a rope 
to the doorpost and around their waist, and it may go 100 yards, and so that extended their home in their mind. So I can walk those 100 yards with a rope tied around me. I'm still attached to my home. Therefore, this doesn't qualify as being against the Sabbath today. So I got myself, you know, 100 extra paces. That's the kind of stuff they were doing, okay? And if it meant somebody got in the way and got hurt by it, they didn't really care. Okay, um, wrap it up here. You know, the Corinthians were encouraged to take a stand against evil immorality in their church. Um, you know, put people out of the church that were, that were engaged in immoral behavior and would not repent. Uh, Matthew 18 gives us a formula for how we deal with church discipline issues. When we've got somebody who claims to be a, a Christian or a church member and they're not behaving according to the ethics of Christianity. Um, they're to be warned, they're to be confronted, they're to be uh, urged to repent. And if they refuse those things, then at some point after, you know, you go to them the first time, you go back with a witness, and the third time you tell it to the church, and after those three times, if they refuse to repent, then you're to put them out of the church and treat them as a lost brother. Uh, because uh, the idea being a saved brother would be broken and repentant if his brothers are telling him he's sinning. And so he should want to be restored to the, to the church family. But if he continues to put up a, a prideful wall, then he's given evidence that he's not really a believer anyway. So you, you uh, ostracize him from the, from the family. Hoping against hope that that ultimately will get his attention and wake him up. That he will repent. <clears throat> when the church stopped preaching God's righteousness, justice, and eternal punishment of the lost, it stopped preaching the fullness of the gospel, and both society and the church have suffered greatly for it. And when the church stopped holding its own members accountable to God's standards and stopped disciplining its own ranks, a great deal of its moral influence on society was sacrificed. That's what John MacArthur said. Um, okay, let me quickly, I'm going to give you the four things that he gives us here that um, Jesus identifies four basic human rights that he uses to illustrate the idea of non-retaliation. The first one is dignity. The first one is personal dignity. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek. To, to hit someone in the face was the, was the greatest demeaning gesture you could make. Even a slave would take a whipping on the back or the body. It may hurt more. It may take more time to heal. But... If you attack somebody's face, that was the greatest indignity you could do. So he's saying that we as believers, as people of the kingdom, if somebody demeans us to this extreme way, we're not to be upset by that or to take offense by that and retaliate, but that we're to say, you know, turn the cheek, and if you must do it again, do it again. Okay? Uh, put aside our claim to dignity and rest and trust in God to be our defender. Um, security. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt. Now the picture here is uh, a wardrobe. You had an outer cloak or a coat. And you had underneath that, just like we would wear, you'd have a shirt or a tunic that was thinner. And, uh, and most people had one coat, one outer cloak. All right? That's all they had. Underneath, they might have more than one tunic that they would wear. They change them out, you know, in the course of a few days. 
Uh, and so what he's saying here is if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, your tunic, your undershirt, let him have your coat, your outer garment too. The shirt was the tunic worn as an undergarment. The coat was the outer garment. The coat was critically important as it was a blanket at night. If you were out traveling or something, you had to bed down, that outer coat became your, your covering to protect you. Most people today own multiple shirts, but only one coat. And the Mosaic law required that the coat be returned to its owner before sundown, simply because it was such a key item for protection. So this is not about robbery. This is not about somebody taking something from you, but it's somebody who has a legitimate claim, a financial claim against you. You haven't paid a bill. And so they sue you, and they are going to take your tunic, and Jesus says, give them your coat too if that's what it takes to settle the accounts. It's pretty severe. It's pretty severe. So it's the picture that true kingdom citizens should surrender the coat rather than cause offense to someone else. The court could not require demand the coat be surrendered, but it could be voluntarily given. Third one is liberty. Roman law gave a soldier the right to force a civilian to carry his pack for a Roman mile. This was a little bit less than our mile, more like a kilometer, I guess. So a Roman soldier could come along and he'd say, Hey, you come here. Carry my pack, carry my sword, carry my spear, carry my helmet. I can ask you to carry it for a mile. Jesus said, If they asked you to carry it for a mile... Carry it to. Carry it to with a generous attitude. Whatever the law requires there, go ahead and give to. Um, rather than retaliate, surrender your personal liberty even more than what is required. And then the fourth one was property. Give to him who asks. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Possessiveness is a characteristic of a fallen human nature. Right? Right? Whatever we've got, we see it in our kids immediately, don't we? Mine, 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 mine. You know, there can be a, a, a floor full of toys in there in the toddler's area down in the nursery. And one kid's over here playing with one toy with a hundred other things over there. And this other kid, he wants what this kid's playing with. He doesn't want these things. And he goes and takes it, doesn't he? Goes on all the time. Happens in my house every time my grandchildren come over. You know? With mom and dad screaming, don't take that from it. Don't take, don't take, don't take. It's too late. She's already taken it and ran. You know, what makes them do that? But Jesus is saying this is the way the world works as human beings have this desire, this fallen nature to possess. If someone comes and takes, needs to borrow, wants something that you have, let them have it. Don't begrudge them. Don't try to hold on to it. But... Loan it to them. Give it to them. Possessiveness is a characteristic of fallen nature, yet nothing truly belongs to us. We are merely stewards of everything that God owns, the things that He's put in our care. So we should be generous with God's resources that are placed in our hands, not for our purposes, but for His. Right? Questions? That was a quick flyover. Questions, thoughts?